There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, I'm the founder, and my mission is to help ethical entrepreneurs and holistic healers to find their voice through spiritual coaching and podcasting. I'm honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through healing, kindness, innovation, purpose, and spirit. Understanding that to create collective change, we need to be the change. It all begins with us. Gregory Offner is the founder and CEO of Global Performance Institute, a researcher and an award-winning keynote speaker. After enduring 15 surgeries on his vocal cords, nearly losing the ability to speak permanently, he now makes sure the words he uses matter. Greg also spent 15 years as an internationally renowned dueling piano bar performer, performing professionally on five of the seven continents, and now combines his keynote speaking with the piano. My chat with Greg was uplifting, thought-provoking, and full of life lessons. So if you need a kickstart to your new year, this is the episode for you. Welcome, Greg, to The Ethical Evolution. Bendy, thank you for having me. You are so welcome. Now, you're coming to us from Philadelphia in the States. Um, For people who have not heard of you, can you go ahead and tell us who you are and what you do? Me? Absolutely. I thought you were going to ask about Philly, and I was going to tell you Philly (laughs) is the home of the World Series losing. (laughs) Philadelphia Phillies right now. Man, we had a good run. And I'm wearing Uh, a Dodgers shirt to make it even worse for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am the uh, world's only um, actor who you've never seen on a screen. Um, I acted like a corporate executive for nearly 20 years. <laughs> and I was, I was damn good at it, Bindi. <laughs> but in 2015, I suffered a vocal cord injury. And it not only sidelined me from my corporate job, it sidelined me from the job that I really loved. Mm. This was a job I had at night that very few people in my day job world knew about. I was a professional dueling piano player. Incredible. I played at piano bars all over the world on five continents from Vegas to Paris, from Manhattan to Milan. I've played all over. And that was my passion. Mm. I loved getting up on stage and entertaining and, and engaging audiences and And in 2015, that was all taken from me because of these vocal cord injuries. And so I had to go through a lot of silence and many, many surgeries to fix my vocal cords. But ultimately in that process, which was maybe the best thing to ever happen to me, I realized that I didn't want to go back to a world where I did this job that I didn't really like during the day. And yet it paid well, but it was soul sucking Mm. really to pretend that I cared. It was a job that other people would have loved and other people should have had, not me. Mm. I was just pretending I was acting. And at night, the thing I really loved to do, I didn't have the courage to try to do full-time. I was scared mm. to, you know, burn the boats as Tony Robbins might say, and, and just get rid of the day job and go with the passion. But the vocal cord injury became the best thing for me because it made me look at my life and say, if this had been it, if I could never talk again because of this would I be happy with the choices I made? And the answer is no. 
I wouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. And I made the decision then and there that I was going to do it differently. When I got my voice back, if I got my voice back, because there was a period of time where even the doctors thought, you know, you might not have a professionally usable voice ever again. I said, if I get it back, I'm going to do things different. And so when uh, the doctor said, look, you should start to think of yourself as post-recovery, that you're, that you're doing well. You'll never be as good as you were, but you're doing well enough to, to go back to singing a little bit, speaking a little bit. I said, I want to do something different. And I ran into someone who helped me figure out what that was, a stranger at an event. I can tell you a little bit more about that story. It's a, it's a fascinating story because it's funny how strangers can see parts of you and mm. can tell you things about you that, that may be blind. We may have a blind spot about that, eh? Mm. Oh, my gosh. There's so much to unpack there, Greg. Um, you know, just our voice alone. Um, you know, we don't understand how much we take it for granted. Um, particularly me, um, I'm behind my phone every day. If I didn't have that, I, I really don't know what I'd do because um, I'm also a voiceover artist, um, I have a background in radio, and if that was taken away from me, I I don't know how I would cope. I mean, being literally silenced, how did you cope with that? I describe it as a death-like experience, mm-hmm. and I don't mean for that to sound melodramatic, and, and I certainly am not playing the whose tragedy is bigger game here. There are people with what I consider very serious issues. I wouldn't consider mine serious because I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. There's never any doubt that I'd keep living. But there was a doubt for a period of time whether I'd continue living and speaking. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was a death-like experience because, like you, I identify with the world, the way I connect to the world is through my voice, Mm. whether it's singing or speaking. And it was a roller coaster ride through five years, 13 vocal cord surgeries, two stomach reconstructions, uh, because acid reflux was a really big issue for me in degrading and damaging my vocal cords. And there was a point, probably towards the middle, the sixth or seventh surgery, where I was standing on a subway platform wondering if it would be just a better decision to get in front of the train instead of get on it. And that was a real inflection point for me where I noticed that it wasn't just a a fleeting thought. Cause I think we all, we can't control the thoughts that pop mm. up in our brain. We all have weird thoughts, you know, mm. you ever, be honest. Have you ever been at like a conference or an event and you're talking to somebody and for no reason in particular, you go, what would happen if I punched them? Or what would happen if I kissed them? And here's like, that thought, that thought in my brain. These thoughts just appear, right? So we we have all sorts of crazy thoughts, but this was like a consideration. Mm. And I said, I, I got to do something about this. That's not okay. There are too many people that love me and I love being alive too much to really think about that. And so I did, uh, maybe not what psychologists would advise you to do, but what felt right to me in the moment, which was to go to a Tony Robbins event. Mm. <laughs> and... And it was funny that it wasn't Tony that made the change. It was a woman I met in line for the concession stand. Um, her name is Svetlana. And she, we were just standing. I didn't know her. She was standing in front of me. She turned around because it was a long line. And she goes, hey, first time here? And I said, yeah, actually it is. She goes, oh, this is my 10th event. I was like, oh, my God, 10 <laughs> events. Man, you must be really messed up. You keep coming back to the And I said, no, I'm just kidding. But, wow, that's impressive. Tell me what it is. Tell me about you. And so she told me her life story. Bindi, it was, I've never heard a a person's story that I've met 
who's gone through so much and come out the way that she has a very successful individual. And so she gets done telling me this incredible story. And then she goes, so what about you? Tell me your story. And I said, "Mm, nah, no, (laughs) no, nobody cares about my story at this point. Your story. Wow. Amazing. My story. Nobody cares. She said, come on, Greg, not letting you off the hook. Tell me about you. And it's that thing about strangers. Mm. I just unloaded, um, not unloaded on her, but I just, I told her everything. I wasn't holding back. I said, here's what I'm frustrated about. Here's what I'm scared of. And as I'm telling, finishing my story, she's, I see this twinkle in her eye and she's smiling and I'm, I'm sort of like, Alana, well, what are you smiling about? Like, she goes, you don't see it. Do you, Greg? I said, I don't know. I see what? She says, you are telling me about these parts of your life as if they're multiple people, as if this, this psychology, uh, your curiosity in psychology and how the brain works, if that's like one compartment, and then this part of you that loves music and performing, and that's another compartment, and then this compartment, and I wonder what it would look like if you put all those compartments, if you put all those things together. And I said, I don't know. What, What do you think? And she did that thing that I, I, I often think parents do, you know, where they put their arm around somebody's shoulder and they they point them towards the sunset, you know, or something <laughs> like that. But instead of the sunset, she pointed me towards the stage and she pointed out there. She said, what if that's what you're meant to do? And I just went. Isn't like, it amazing? My head metaphorically <laughs> exploded because I had never thought, I mean, I'm not an astronaut, you know, I uh, didn't win the World Series, neither did the Phillies, but I didn't win the World Series. <laughs> So who, you know, who was I to be up on stage? But as I looked into that world of, of speaking and helping others, what I learned is that you don't have to be an astronaut. You have to have a passion for helping others. My mom was an educator. When I was in college, I thought I might want to be an educator. And what I get to do now as a professional keynote speaker is a lot like being an educator. I basically give a lecture to a class of professionals mm. at conferences all over the world. And it is the most rewarding and the most exciting job that I've ever had. And for once, when I'm doing my job, I'm not acting. Mm, mm. And just just seeing you talk about it, I can see the passion in you. You just light up. Um, I mean, with, with merging those passions, though, Greg, like uh, speaking at conferences, do you do you tinkle the ivories at the conferences as well in the whole same I space? I do. It's an, it's an unexpected approach to delivering these keynotes because, you know, typically – you rock up to, you know, an 8 a.m. business session at a conference. And the last thing you're expecting is to have the guy go, all right, we're going to sing Sweet Caroline, everybody. Here we go. <laughs> you know, so I get a lot of side eye. Uh, in fact, I just did an event this week where uh, the group who I spoke for had a cocktail event the night before that went into the wee hours of the morning. And so some of these people were rolling in, you know, looking for their, uh, you know, uh, paracetamol or looking for their Tylenol <laughs> packets and, and uh, you know, a bit of a headache and, uh but they did it. You know, they engaged because what, what I think people want really is an experience. And I think too often, at least in the work that I do, a lot of the people I'm talking to are so focused on engagement, engaging their people and, and retention, retaining their people and, and, and performance. You know, how are people showing up and performing at work? And, and what I've learned in all of my work as a dueling piano player and in the work I do now is that engagement doesn't come before experience. It comes after. It's a decision. Mm. The decision people make, they say, this experience is good. I want more of it. And they engage. 
but they said, this experience does not meet what I thought I was getting. And so they disengage. And so I try to give people that experience in a keynote that we really want. I mean, no one wants to be talked to at 8.30 a.m. with a headache and a hangover, <laughs> or you just traveled and flew across the world or across the country. Like, if you wanted to listen to somebody just talk, you could, there's a great website called YouTube, <laughs> and it's free. Mm. So what I give them is an experience that they can't get unless they're in the room, uh, or for the virtual events now, unless they're in the Zoom room. Mm. And I absolutely love that. That would be a keynote I would tote sign up for. Um, but, the, you know, getting back to the psychology behind it and and a couple of things. Um, as, a, as a leader, what you've touched on there is that, you know, we need to connect with the human, not just the performance that they can output. And mm. as part of that, the psychology behind how we get them to engage. So, you know, what you've done there is you're introducing music um, a creative medium that opens up the other side of the brain for people and helps them sort of become more grounded and present in the moment instead of worrying about how the hell they got to this conference or what deadlines they're missing today at this conference. Um, and they're actually getting more present and grounded in the moment and just having some goddamn fun. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier that you are a voiceover artist. And I think about, for me, one of the voiceover artists that I, I think you know, set the stage, um, are, are, well, two are Dan Castellaneta and Hank Azaria. Yeah. I mean, they've done so many voices mm. and you can't help but want to imitate them. Mm. Um, and so what's my point? I think that the mark of a great voiceover artist isn't necessarily how much they make or how many recordings they're on. I think it's that they inspire other people to want to be a voiceover artist. Mm. I used to think that the mark of a great musician was how many big stages I could get on or, you know, before I got married, how many people I could meet uh, because I was up on stage. You know what I mean? But what I what I realize is that being a great musician means somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, Greg, my mom made me learn piano when I was a kid and I thought it sucked. But mm. I think I'm going to I think I'm going to try to pick it back up now mm. and, and to carry that a little further. I think that also means that the mark of a great leader is that they create and inspire other people to be leaders. Not that they beat their quarterly number every quarter or that they're more profitable this year than they were last year. Like, that's fine. But how are you inspiring other people to go out into the world and make change? That's that's what I want more people to do. Mm. Yeah, it's it's actually funny. Um, and I, I do often talk about on this show, uh, I also hold a co corporate job um, aside from doing this, Craig. So, um, you know, I do often bring my experiences from, from that environment to the show. Um, and we recently just had a, a bit of a, a get together for Christmas and um, we did a gratitude uh, kind of thing where people shared messages about each other. And I got all these pages of, of gratitude messages about me and how I inspire others to, to create change and how I make work a fun place to be. And I was like, wow, I didn't know I did all that, but that's really cool, <laughs> you know. So it's like if we're making that impact on people and making them want to come to work and have fun and actually perform and be accountable, that's pretty bloody cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that the purpose of business – is to solve problems profitably. And somewhere along the line, we put the solve problems part after the profitably part. Mm. And so for me to get a message, like you're saying that folks are 
giving you gratitude messages. Um, for me to get a message from somebody that hears what I have to say, which is, look, you know, profitability is great, but like, how are you changing the world around you? Because if you want money, there's this place called a bank. Just mm. take a gun, go rob it. Like they got plenty of money. You know, what I'd rather you do is create change in the world. And because of that change, you can profit a little bit too. And so when I get a message from somebody afterwards that says, you know, coming to this conference, I'm going to take this idea back into the world and try to implement it. That, it makes it all worthwhile. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, this is what my whole agency and this this whole show is about, is creating change and spreading the stories of change. Um, but there's some people who fear change. Um, even in today and the last few years that the world's been through collectively, there's been so much change fatigue. There's been so much every single day. How can we help people to accept change that it's part of evolution? It's part of our everyday instead of being yeah. afraid of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're exactly right. It is, it's part of our everyday. That's how you know that you're alive. Mm. I mean, between the time that this conversation started and when it will end, we're both at a biological level, different people. Yeah. Um, I was just having a lesson with one of my, mem- uh, one of the members of my vocal care team today. And he said, you know, no live performance is ever the same because your vocal cords, the cells in them are always changing. Mm. Your body's always evolving. So you can't sing you literally can't sing the same song the same way. Mm. And people, you know, there's an ancient proverb uh, that says, no man walks through the same river twice. Mm. The water's always moving and the person is always changing. So we have this desire as humans for homeostasis. Mm. We, we want to keep living. And so we're assessing any event as either a threat or an opportunity. The real challenge is to accept the fact that every change is both a threat and an opportunity, but to choose to look for the opportunities. And I, I know this from personal experience. The whole 15 years of my life, I spent pretending to be this corporate guy who wanted to wear a suit, and talk about business. I was avoiding change. I was mm. looking at the potential change of leaving that job. And instead of seeing all of the opportunities it could lead to, I thought, well, where, where am I going to get money from? What, what happens about benefits? What, what, what about this? What, and it's, I'm not saying don't consider all of the factors mm. in a change. That's not what I'm saying, but boy, we can spreadsheet the hell out of anything. Mm. Sometimes, you know, my daughter is two and she's in swim lessons and it's fascinating because she knows that when she holds the wall, she's safe. The whole art of swimming is letting go of the wall. You can't swim if you don't let go of the wall. Mm. You can't live if you don't embrace change. You're literally just waiting to die. That's what your life is. If you're sitting there pushing every opportunity for change or every potential change away. We, have a, a, uh, we live in Philadelphia on a block a block of homes. And so there's a person at the end of our block who came to a neighborhood uh, meeting because there's a developer, there's a big industrial lot behind us and they want to develop it into like nice shops and all these other things. We're thrilled. It's going to send property value up a little bit, which means our taxes will go up a little bit, I'm sure. But, you know, this woman has lived in this house her whole life. And she, (laughs) she's this old Italian grandma. And so she's in, in the, in the, uh, in the meeting And she says, I don't want nothing to change. 
You weren't here when I bought the house. I don't need you here now. <laughs> Why you want to change? And it's so funny because, you know, she's watched this neighborhood change around her. All of the people change. This neighborhood is going to die if we don't get some change. Mm -hmm. And it's just like you and I, that if we don't embrace change, we're just going to sit here and rust. Going to be old and crusty and none of our joints are going to work. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny <laughs> that you mentioned um, Tony Robbins because um, when I was about 19, um, <clears throat> one of his books, um, The Giant Within, um, absolutely changed my life. Um, and, you know, my life pretty much went from night to day uh, and I turned my entire life around. And um, one of the th big things that I got out of Tony Robbins that I actually use today as a leader in my job is his concept of can I, constant and never-ending improvement, mm -hmm. which is nothing but change. It's constant change. And I actually brought it up at work uh, last week and people were like, what, what woo-woo are you on about now? <laughs> and I was like, no, this is actually what we're here to do. Yes, and I have to tell you that I was given that book in 2010, maybe, by a buddy. And I read the first three pages and I threw it out the window. I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say that I threw it out the window. I did. That was a really stupid move. It was very not cool. But I threw it out the window. I got to the part in the like the introduction or where, you know, Tony and I could just like imagine I was flying in my helicopter <laughs> and I looked down and saw a school where I used to be a janitor. And I thought, wow, how does life change? And I was like, you're full of it. Goodbye. And I threw the book out the window. And, and I really, I was like anti Tony Robbins for a long time. Then I saw the documentary mm. uh, that was done on Netflix. Mm. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm very, into uh, behavioral psychology and have studied it a lot. I mean, if you look at my Audible, 95% of what's in there is behavioral psych, industrial organizational psych, neuroscience books. Like I'm, I'm geek out on this stuff. And I recognize so many therapeutic principles, um, Adlerian psychology, CBT, um, that he was implementing. He mm. even I even saw him do what uh, is called a parts party. Mm. Uh, so Virginia Satir is a legendary psychologist that basically would help people um, when they needed to reintegrate different um, ideas or parts of their personality. She'd do this parts party where she would basically invite you to talk to another part of yourself. Um, and she, I'm being really crude in describing it, but I saw that and I went, well, damn, like maybe this dude isn't a charlatan. Maybe there's actually like legit stuff behind it. Um, and I went to, uh, so I went to UPW was that event that I went to. And the first day, it's so funny how this transition happened because the first day I was like, don't touch me. Don't high five me. I'm just mm. here to watch. Like, no, 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 no. By day three, I'm hugging strangers walking through the concourse. I'm yes. like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's funny when you go to those events. I, I know more, most recently, earlier this year, I went to um, an event with Marianne Williamson uh, here in Brisbane and, um, you know, I, I think I was in the front row. Yeah, I was in the front row. And um, there was a spare seat next to me and it was just, you know, when COVID was starting to lift and people were a little bit, oh, do we go to each other? And this woman, she literally nearly sat on my lap and she <laughs> she sat next to me and I was like, oh, yeah, hi. Next minute, we are best friends hugging each other on the way out and are best friends on Facebook. And I was like, geez, that escalated quickly, but it's this environment 
that of connection in that space that we're all we are all one basically and i think those events can be so powerful to bring people together yeah there is um there's something i talk about from stage and it's that everybody's everybody's got baggage mm. you know one of the biggest challenges as a leader in an organization is that your employees bring baggage mm. and they've most of them have been hurt in one way or another they've been misled they've been mistreated They've been misinformed about what the job is. They've missed out on, a, on an opportunity to be truly led. And instead, they've been managed. We're not meant to be managed. We are meant to be led. We actually respond really well to great leadership. And we respond really poorly to management. Mm. And individuals just in our everyday life. I mean, come on. If you've ever been on a date or had a relationship, you know that people got baggage, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that at those events, and what I love about using music in a keynote, mm. that it, it breaks down this barrier of the baggage. Mm. And it's just a really honest experience with other people. There's vulnerability. There's excitement. Um, and I think that the more we can bring that into our everyday life, the more we can say that, you know, these, these, these BS rules about like, well, here's how I'm supposed to be. You know, here's what a conversation with HR is supposed to be like. If we can just get rid of that and treat each other like people, we would all be better off. And I think we would be as a, can I say as a species? Mm. I think that we would be more successful. We would be happier with the success that we're finding because we are, I mean, we're really successful as a species. Mm. I'm reading this fascinating book right now that's all about how like we're not even really supposed to be here on earth. Mm. I mean, like, think about it. We need air conditioning, electricity, and heating to live mm. on this earth. Like, we're not supposed to be here. Like, evolutionarily, if we hadn't built all these things that allow us to still be here, we'd be dead. It's mm. amazing. We are so creative as a species. It's unbelievable. What we could do with that creativity if we just lowered some of those barriers and some of the BS of, you know, this is what business is supposed to be like. I make all the money. You don't make any money. If you want to make more money, you get your own business. Mm. That's a great idea. Maybe you should get your own business, but that doesn't mean we should treat the people in our business like shit just because it's not their business. Mm. So I think that that vulnerability is um, that the tone of vulnerability comes from the tone of a leader. And what I love about those events is that I see more and more business leaders attending them. I see more and more business leaders embracing this idea of empathy mm. and vulnerability and transparency. And that's good for everybody. Mm. And just allowing people to be human, like in the workplace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean like, it's funny because mm. people are like, so wait, so you're saying like, like there shouldn't be a work me and a non-work me that I should just be like me, me. It's like, well, I don't know. Like maybe the non-work you is an a-hole. It's like, maybe you need to work on that first. So, you know, you've seen the, maybe it's like the Dave Chappelle video where it's like when keeping it real goes wrong or what, what were those whole videos? Like sometimes you shouldn't keep it real. Yeah. Like there should be a little bit of decorum and maybe class brought into a situation. But dollars to donuts, I think generally people are good people. We want to get along with everybody else. We want, I don't want to say we want to be liked because that's not necessarily true, but we want to have harmony. 
mm. with one another. We're not trying to go outside and get into fist fights and honk at each other at the intersection. Like that's this default of the baggage we're all carrying and of, of the, um, I don't want to say, uh, what's Tony, the, the limiting beliefs, mm. right. That we all bring to these situations. You know, uh, one of the things that I've noticed in speaking to highly successful people is that, um, instead of being a competitor, they tend to help one another. So there's that harmony rather than competition. I'm kind of guessing that's a number one rule if you want to get somewhere, right? Yeah. I mean, what we do at the piano bar, while it's called dueling pianos, it's actually more like a collaboration. Mm. It's not a competition. It's collaboration. Because if I try to overplay my colleague, I mean, it may be fun for one or two songs, but the shtick's going to get old eventually. Really, if there is a duel to be had, it's with the audience's wallets in our tip jar. Mm. Like we're trying to get as much of their money into our tip jar. And they're trying to get as much <laughs> of our performance while keeping the money in their wallets. Like, so that's, that may be a duel if there is a duel going on, but it's certainly not between the performers on stage. There's a great movie um, called, I want to say it's called the 1800. And if you haven't seen it, good Lord, it is worth it. It is about a cruise ship um, way back in the day. And this, this boy, I'm going to bastardize the story. This boy grows up on the cruise ship and there's a piano and he's infatuated with the piano and he teaches himself piano. And then one day, I think it's Cab Calloway or a legendary piano player is on the cruise. And the whole crew sort of like goes about lining up this duel between this stowaway boy who doesn't, you know, I don't even think he has a name. I think his name's 1800. Um, and this Cab Calloway character, it is Phenomenal. And that is how dueling pianos started. It was jazz musicians trading licks. But what started to happen was that the crowd got a little too rowdy and uh, the piano players really couldn't be heard over each other. So they started to use napkins to communicate. And then patrons started to use the napkins to make requests. And then a bar named Pat O'Brien's in, um, in New Orleans is really sort of like, you know, the founding place of dueling pianos as we know it today, which is more popular music. Uh, less, you know, ragtime and jazz piano. But the whole experience relies on collaboration, even between the performers and the audience. I mean, even between the performers and the servers and the bartenders, we're all working in concert together. It's a beautiful machine. And business is that way too. And the challenge that I see in organizations when they're not functioning effectively is that there's asymmetrical incentives. Mm. It's a when I win, you lose. Or when you win, I win way more. Mm. And there is a study done to shift gears just slightly. There's a study done regarding rats and their behavior at play. What they noticed was that, you know, there are large rats and small rats, or there's rats of all sizes. So what they wanted to see was if size played a dynamic in social interaction. What they found was that the larger rats and smaller rats, when they would put them together to play, they they play wrestle. I mean, that's how, you know, if you have dogs, that's how they play too. It's how they understand social behavior. It's how we play on the playgrounds. It may not be wrestling, but kickball, all these sorts of sports are forms of, little forms of social competition, which World Series, the Phillies lost, by the way. I mean, I'm just going to play that one more time. <laughs> I'm not upset at all Get about that, it. friends. <laughs> so... All right, in these competitions, what they found is that if 
the big rat didn't let the little rat win at least, I think it was 30 or maybe 40% of the time, 30, 30, let's call it 35%. At least 35% of the time, they disengaged from play. They stopped participating. Mm. And there's a lesson there for businesses, for individuals in the field of negotiation. If you're just constantly winning, 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 and you're not allowing the other person to gain ground, at least 35% of the time, there's a good chance people are going to stop negotiating. They're going to stop dealing with you. They're going to stop participating. And I think that's what we've seen, at least here in the States, since the 80s, late 70s, 80s in in business, is that it seems like it's been a very one-sided conversation where business and Wall Street always win. And the average Joe has been losing ground and losing ground and losing ground. And COVID was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And now we're seeing a real sea change in the behavior of individuals. And it's fueled, it's enabled in some parts by the ubiquity of Wi-Fi and the presence of peer-to-peer payment systems. Mm. And it's funny because now you're seeing, at least in the States, this backlash against a service called Venmo, where our our revenue agency is starting to dig into these peer-to-peer transactions and go, oh, well, we want, we want that, we want that, we want that. And the banks are offering this other peer-to-peer payment system that they're really pushing very hard here. Now that Wi-Fi is available to the average person, and peer-to-peer payments available. And now we have sites like Shopify and Etsy. Mm. You don't need a business to make money. Mm. Like, I mean, like a big business. You can be your own business. Absolutely. What I do would have been tremendously more uh, difficult to get into before YouTube. But now I can put videos up online. You used to have to mail VHS cassettes to speaking agents and to associations and hope that they'd watch it. I can tell you when they open my email, how long they watch my video for, who's going to my website. It it is so much easier in this world now for an individual to take control of their own destiny. The, the, the the, the, The switch that needs to flip here in the States, I think, is healthcare. Mm. Is it still tied to full time employment? Once that's gone, look out. It's going to be a true, uh, what were they calling it? uh, The new world order? Yeah, it's going to be a true new order in terms of how business how businesses interact with other people that's incredible and you know there's been so many conversations i've had lately and i've i've just been over to the states um just recently this year and everybody is saying how the healthcare system is is failing everyone um but you know that's a whole other podcast yeah <laughs> that is a whole For our third hour we'll be talking <laughs> <laughs> That is a whole other podcast, but I completely, I completely get where you're coming from. Now, Greg, uh, gosh, I could talk to you all day as we've just gathered, you know, we could be here for three, four hours. Um, but um, obviously people are going to get bored of that. So if people want to find out more about you and get in touch, where can they go? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I would encourage them to check out my website. It's gregoryoffner.com. I would encourage them to connect with me on Instagram, Um I put some thoughts out every day on Twitter. I try to share stuff on Instagram. I'm bad at social media, but I'm getting better. I'm a work in progress, just like all of us. Um, But the website is where they can find more about my content. I'm very accessible in terms of email or text or, you know, whatever. So get in touch. Let me know what you liked or didn't like about our conversation today. Um, Let me know how I can help you because this is um, something I'm really passionate about and glad that I get to do. Awesome. Now, I'm super keen to hear your answer to the next question because uh, we're both so much alike when it comes to being passionate about change. So, what's the change you'd like to see in the world and how can we bring it to life? 
the how we can bring it to life is a little bit more difficult. I don't know that I have the answer of how. I think that what I'm doing is trying to contribute on that. Um, I would like to see more people choose as a purpose for their life solving a problem that makes the world better for others. Mm. I think my, and I'm, I'm sure I bring biases into this perspective of the world, but I see a lot of people out there who seem to think uh, that just making money, going home and paying the bills and doing it all over again, rinse and repeat is good enough. And everybody says that they'd like to sort of get out of that rat race. And wouldn't it be nice to have a, a boat like Jeff Bezos or a mansion like Mark Zuckerberg? But many people have this belief that that's just not possible. What I think would be such a tremendous sea change for, for our species is if everybody woke up and identified a problem that they want to actively work to make better. Maybe it's that traffic sucks and what can we do to change traffic? Or maybe it's that food spoils too fast and what could we do if we had longer lasting food? I mean, I don't know what problem is going to light you, light your soul on fire and get you excited to get out of bed in the morning. But I got to tell you that I've worked many, 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 many jobs. Some of them just aren't it. And yet there are people who work those jobs for the rest of their life. Mm. And I wish that I could get inside their brain and get them inspired to solve a problem because we need them. We need them involved in this conversation, involved in this experience that we call life, or we won't continue to survive as a species. That We're all here for a purpose. Mm. No one's going to tell us what that purpose is. You've got to decide. It's not even something you go and discover. You've just got to decide. That's what I wish I could change in the world, is get everybody excited about deciding on a purpose. Mm. And, you know, that's that's my whole mission with this show, Greg, is to, you know, just get people thinking and to maybe think about the decisions that they're making, whether it be how they work or how they spend their time or their money or whatever it might be. Um, but actually just being that small piece of collective change one by one, that is all we need to start doing for it to make a bigger impact. And mm-hmm. I really love that concept of, well, I don't love it actually, I wish it would change, um, is, you know, all these people who are in a life but not actually in it. They're not actually living it. It's like they're a robot on autopilot and like you say, they, they check in, check out, get their paycheck and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's no passion. There's they they are just doing it because that's what they've always done. Yeah, I'd say quit being the supporting character in the story of your life. Mm. Mm. Just like you being an actor that nobody ever saw. It's yeah. Exactly. Well, we've come full circle. Look at that, man. Look at that. <laughs> Anyone would think we're good at this stuff, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I can't thank you enough for being a part of the ethical evolution. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Bindi. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution Podcast. If you're ready to be the change and would love to work with me on finding your voice through spiritual coaching or creating your own podcast with impact, visit ethicalchangeagency.com.
Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Mile, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Electric acid.